Now today's passage from Matthew chapter 4 verse 18 through to the beginning of chapter 5 is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And most people when they speak and read of the Sermon on the Mount they start at chapter 5 verse 1 because that's where it looks like it starts. But of course remember chapters and verses were all added into the Bible much much later. And the real context for the Sermon on the Mount is the passage we're looking at today Although, to help you see that, we're going to be looking at some of the Sermon on the Mount en route. And so, really, I'm going to start at 5.1 and work backwards and then forwards to help you see what this sermon is about in its context and what the importance of the context is for this very great sermon. For the Sermon on the Mount has always been the popular sermon of Jesus, especially amongst those who think of themselves as Christians and especially amongst those who have never studied what Jesus taught. But popularity is such a fickle thing, isn't it? We all have the desire to be accepted, to be part of the crowd, to be part of our culture, to be wanted, to be liked. We all have that desire. As somebody who wants to be unpopular, wants to be rejected, has deep psychological problems and needs help. And if that's you, please come and talk to us that we can find a counsellor for you because it's not healthy to want to be unpopular. But popularity is so capricious as fashions change and the likes and dislikes of the community are are so fleeting and changeable and popularity is such a terrible tyrant as we desperately change ourselves and our behavior to remain in with other people and we modify ourselves to gain acceptance it's not just the poor teenagers who are tyrannized by peer group pressure We're all vulnerable to the power of the group. And it's not just a personal problem. Just as people feel the success of their nations in sporting teams and a sporting team victory can lift the mood of a nation and can depress the mood of a nation when they lose, of course we feel the disappointment of their failure, so the success of a movement can carry a sense of vindication as the unpopularity of movement can also be depressing. When we see a large crowd following our movement, we can feel that we're on the winning side, just as we can feel depressed and losers when we see the numbers falling. The Sermon on the Mount starts with Jesus seeing the crowds. Chapter 5, verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth, and taught them. This verse is not a casual introduction to the sermon. It's a critical to understanding not only the timing of the sermon, but also its main theme. The Sermon on the Mount was preached at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Jesus started his ministry when John the Baptist was put in prison back in chapter 4, verse 12. And now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And that's where he started. And he went through Galilee preaching the same message as John. Verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He started preaching in the northern part of Israel, Galilee, intentionally fulfilling the purposes of God. For when judgment of God commenced, it commenced from the north. The Assyrians came through Galilee. The Babylonians came through Galilee. 
The Greeks came there, the Romans came there. Everybody comes through Galilee heading south and each one of these armies destroying Israel as it comes. And so the northern area of Galilee was the place that always lived under the shadow of death, in the darkness of death where the judgment of God would come from. Now into that region of Galilee that stood under the shadow of the judgment of God, he came and proclaimed the kingdom of God and called upon people to get ready to welcome the kingdom by repentance. But why? Why were the crowds there? Seeing the crowds, chapter 5, verse 1, he went up on the mountain. The crowds that followed Jesus came for healing. For unlike John, who preached the kingdom and baptised, Jesus preached the kingdom and healed. Look at verse 23 of chapter 4. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He healed as he did to fulfil prophecy. Old Testament prophecies like Isaiah 35 spoke of the coming of the Messiah who would heal like this. Because Jesus also healed because he was not just announcing the kingdom, he was also bringing the kingdom. And this healing ministry attracted huge crowds, for we read in verse 24, so his fame spread through all Syria, and they brought him all the sick with afflicted with various diseases and pains and oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and, and he healed them. Of course it would attract crowds. Whenever genuine healing takes place, people will travel from everywhere to receive healing. If I was but laying my hands upon you here and everybody I laid my hands on, suddenly their eyesight was fixed and they didn't need glasses anymore, guess how many people would be here next Tuesday? We wouldn't be able to get in. The queue would be massive. There'd be demonstrations from the optometrists against me. It would change the whole night. If it just could be done like that, Jesus was doing healings like that and everybody heard about it and they came. How big were the crowds? Well, there's no number given. It's not like the feeding of the 5,000 or the feeding of the 4,000 where they sat down and could be numbered. They kept coming. And so the way Matthew describes the size was to tell you where they came from. People came with their sick friends and relatives from all over Palestine. Verse 25, we read, Great crowds came from Galilee, the Decapolis, from Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond to the Jordan. I mean, this map that we have there can start to show you the kinds of areas that was all taking place, but it was all over Palestine. Up to 120 miles if you're old, 190 kilometres if you're young, People were travelling, that is, 190 kilometres would go from, from Sydney uh, up to Singleton or out uh, west uh, beyond Lithgow towards Bathurst or down south to Goulburn. And remember, they're walking. I mean, those numbers I just got, that's as the crow flies. They weren't travelling as the crow flies, they were travelling around the hills. It was actually much further than that. And they're walking as they come. And not only are they walking, they're bringing sick relatives with them. How long do you think it would take to bring one of your sick relatives by feet, by foot, down from Singleton or over the mountains from uh, beyond Lithgow to come to Sydney? It was a, 
trip of several days, possibly weeks, to be able to get to him. That's how big the crowds were. They were coming from everywhere. Jesus' ministry had therefore reached national significance. He was a success. He had arrived. And so great were his healing ministries that people all over Israel travelled these long, arduous trips to come to the Galilean preacher and healer. And Jesus responded to the sight of the crowds by preaching the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up onto the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and, opening his mouth, he taught them. Now, today I'm going to give you a quick overview of Jesus' response to the crowds. For his response to the crowds had three aspects, what he did, what he taught, and what he concluded. What he did was discipleship training. That is, he didn't stay with the crowds, healing them. He withdrew from the crowds and went up on the mountain. Uh, we're not told which mountain he went on. The mountain doesn't particular significance unless you're a tourist guide in Palestine and want to make money out of the gullible. It's most likely that it was the withdrawal that matters from the preaching and healing, a withdrawal from the crowds. For he sat with his disciples. Now, sitting was the traditional position of the teacher. Unlike us, where I stand and you sit, the ancient teacher would sit and the crowd would stand. Uh, it's a good way of keeping the crowd awake on all occasions and giving great comfort to the preacher. And so he climbed up on the mountain and sat down and his disciples came to him. Uh, the cathedral is the seat of the archbishop. Uh, in fact, we have a seat up there for the archbishop, a big seat in which you could fit several archbishops or the archbishop is overweight and needs some exercise regime. But that is what it is because that's where he actually teaches from. This is the teaching place of the, of the archbishop. Well, Jesus sat at the mountain in order to be able to teach his disciples. The only disciples we've met so far were the men who had left their nets to follow him, who were being called into service as fishermen, fishermen who would fish for men, that is. How extraordinary that Jesus can just call upon these people and say, leave your nets, leave your family, leave the family business, come follow me, and they did. But they came to follow him in order to do a job. Well, how they must have marvelled at Jesus' healings. How excited they must have been by the crowds. Looking forward to their task of fishing for men. Jesus is demonstrating how to do it. Look at the great crowds that he's gathered into the kingdom already. They had done the right thing, leaving their father's nets. They had picked the right man. This time, I'm on the winning side and we're at the forefront of a national movement. And so Jesus is going to teach them. This wasn't secretive discipleship training. This wasn't a secret way of how to fish for men. For at the end of the sermon, if you go across a couple of pages to chapter 7, because the sermon goes for three chapters, at the end of the sermon, verse 28, we read, and when Jesus, chapter 7, 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. But notice the clear distinction between Jesus' disciples 
and the crowds. It's seen in the very last words of the sermon. He was teaching not as their scribes. They still followed their scribes. The disciples are following Jesus. For the crowds followed their own scribes, not Jesus, but Jesus' disciples follow him. Jesus' disciples were leaving all to follow him. Jesus' disciples were coming into active service. So although the crowds hear the Sermon on the Mount, it only really taught the disciples, those called to fish for men. Then notice what he taught them. The second point is what he taught them, then in the content of the sermon. And I'll give you a quick overview of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. Just picking up four highlights as we go through it. First highlight is persecution. For Jesus gives this blessing to the disciples back in chapter 5, chapter 5, verse 11. Here is the disciples' blessing. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Their role will be like the persecuted prophets of old. Their role will be like John the Baptist who was in prison at the time. Friends, this must have been a terrible surprise to them and a great shock to them, don't you think? I mean, they looked at the huge crowds and the massive success of Jesus and Jesus says, God's going to bless you with persecution. That doesn't look like what I was signed up for. Secondly, there is the distinctive righteousness. They were to be like salt and like light, like a, a city on the hill that cannot be hidden. And the character of the difference that they are to have for everybody else is that they are to have a righteousness like nobody else. So they had to do such good works that people would praise not them, but praise God. Praise God for the good work that was happening within them. Look at chapter 5, verse 16, 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, people do good works. People say they're lovely people. But these disciples are the kinds of good works they're going to do. People are going to say, that man's been touched by God. There's something extraordinary about what he is doing. And their righteousness had to exceed, chapter 5, verse 20, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Thirdly, these prophet-like persecuted fishermen, whose righteousness was so distinctive, had to be different to others. Chapter 6, verse 8, chapter 6, verse 8, we see Jesus says, Do not be like them. And John Stott, in his wonderful little book, uh, uh, Christian Counterculture, which is an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, describes this as the key to what the whole psalm is about. Do not be like them. Jesus contrasts the disciples with Jewish hypocrisy, with pagan ignorance and stupidity. The disciples' righteousness was not to be external religiosity aimed at impressing other people, but genuine righteousness aimed at pleasing God alone. And fourthly, these fishermen, these disciples, these men who are going to be persecuted like the prophets, whose genuine righteousness was so distinctive, so different, 
were not to care or pursue the things that the Gentiles seek after. The what you eat, what you wear, what you drink that still dominates the pages of our newspapers and magazines and journals and advertising industry, the interest of our populace, the every waking moment of our materialistic, unhappy hedonists. This is how to train fishermen, Jesus says. You see, I see the crowds and it's time for you guys to get your lessons. And the lessons are you're going to be persecuted and you're going to be different righteous, holy, in a way that nobody has actually seen before. And you will be not like other people anymore. And indeed, you're going to be so different that people will hate you and yet at the same time they'll see the work of God in you. Here is what... And the way in which you live, the choices you make, the priorities you have, will not be like everybody else's. won't be about what you wear, what you eat, what you drink won't be a pursuit of the anxieties of life. It's not how most people expect fishermen to be trained. But by being so righteously different, so heavenly minded, so affected by God that they'll be hated and persecuted like the prophets of old, this is the way you're going to fish for men. So looking at Jesus' reaction to the sight of the crowds, What did he teach his disciples? What he taught them was about a lifestyle that would lead to persecution. And what he concluded then is very important to understand the sermon. For the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 7, gives us the point of the sermon. There we read, oh, very famously, the two gates and the two ways the narrow way, the hard way with few on it that leads to life is contrasted with the wide gate and the broad way with many on it that leads to destruction. The mission of Jesus is about life and death, about avoiding hell and destruction. It's not about being popular. It's not the way to popularity. In fact, It's the opposite. It's the unpopular route. And the two gates and the two ways is followed by the warning about the false prophets. The false prophets will wear all the right clothing, the best in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. These false prophets are like bad trees. They will bear no good fruit and they're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. We still need this warning, don't we, friends, because people are so impressed by false prophets, by the professors with the degrees in divinities and the bishops with all the right ecclesiastical pedigree. And our media loves them and gives prominence to them and importance to them and sells their books for them and plasters their picture all over town. But they are false prophets, speaking falsehoods, deceiving people by saying right is wrong and justifying things that are wrong as if they're right. And many will believe them and they'll walk through the wide gate down the broad road that leads to destruction. Which introduces us to the passage about entering the kingdom of heaven in chapter 7, verse 21. It's page 980. Chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven 
On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This must write as one of the most terrible verses in the Bible. Of all the things to ever hear, the one thing you would never want to hear are those awesome words, I never knew you, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. But notice in this passage, these are the false prophets. They claim the name of Jesus, they claim to have preached his name, they claim to have exorcised demons in his name, they claim to have done mighty miracles in his name, but they were never his for they never did the will of Jesus' Father. The work of fishing for men is not doing mighty works, doing huge miracles, doing great healings, doing great exorcisms. The work of fishing for men is not the powerful activity that Jesus was engaged in there in Galilee. It was not naming the name of Jesus. The work of fishing for men is living a very different kind of life to the world around about you. It's the living the life of God's righteousness that marks you out as significantly different from others, not better than others, but touched by God. Supernaturally different in righteousness and therefore consequently hated and persecuted. And my friends, as we go back into offices in a little while and back to work, etc., you see, you, you don't actually fish for the men and the women of our society by doing great miracles. You, you, that, that's not, it's by being very different. It's be, by being touched by God so that the lifestyle and choices you make are the lifestyles and choices of God. That is real supernatural power. So the Sermon on the Mount is training on how to fish for men. I mean, the fishermen knew how to catch fish for the market. Now they had to learn how to catch men for the kingdom. And the key to this activity was the difference that living in the kingdom makes to our lives. We cannot be in the kingdom of heaven and be like the citizens of earth at the same time. And if we are no different to the citizens of earth, we have no way to catch others for the kingdom of heaven. So the expectation of those engaged in the task of evangelism must always be unpopularity. Woe unto all men, woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets, said Jesus. And blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. For so their fathers did to the prophets, said Jesus. Now why did Jesus preach such a message? Was he trying to gather a group of masochists? People who like to be unpopular? No. Was he looking for disciples who were particularly unpleasant people 
No. I mean, fishermen smell a lot, don't they? Was he just trying to recruit in the people who are smelly? No. Was he teaching the necessity of being rude? No, not at all. No, Jesus was teaching this message to the disciples because of the crowds. Because the crowds had come from all over Israel. Because the crowds had come for healing. Because the ministry was deceptively popular. And the disciples would easily be deceived. For we all want to be popular. We all want to be wanted. We all want to be accepted. And if we're going to give our life to a movement, well then we all wanted it to be successful. And we want to be on the vanguard of a movement that is going to change society and the world. We want to be seen in the new age of the the way society is heading. We want to be there in the big crowds and at the front of the crowds. And the healing ministry of Jesus, which was a very important expression of the kingdom of heaven, was easily used to deceive both the crowds and the disciples. And so seeing the crowds, Jesus takes the disciples away and says it's not about the crowds. And you don't fish for men by doing that, which draws huge crowds. The crowds came for healing, but they didn't accept the teaching of Jesus. They were just amazed at it, for it was nothing like their own teachers, but they still kept their own teachers. They didn't say, ah, yes, and our own teachers are now wrong. We're going to follow Jesus. They just said, well, gee, doesn't sound like what we were learning before. But I'm glad I don't limp anymore. I'm glad I can see now. I'm glad I can hear now. But they weren't following Jesus. The disciples came to help Jesus and they needed to be warned that the kingdom of God was about righteousness, not pain relief. It was not about popularity. They were yet to understand that the kingdom of heaven came by the way of crucifixion. Jesus knew it. His father's voice at the baptism had told him, you are my beloved son, that is the Christ, the Messiah, with whom I am well pleased, that is the suffering servant. Jesus knew it. Jesus knew it for he understood the scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die. But the disciples were still looking forward to the kingdom without the cross, the Christ without the cross. In fact, they hadn't even realised there was a cross. They were just looking forward to the kingdom. They were looking forward to the Christ. And they saw it right in front of them with the crowds gathered around following this wonderful man who seemed to be able to do everything and anything and they hadn't understood the man they'd come to follow. Today there are still people who want crossless Christianity, who still want to name the name of Jesus but not wear the shame and ignominy, the pain and the suffering, the unpopularity. They will happily wear a very beautiful jewelled cross but they do not want to bear the real cross of rejection and hurt and shame and ignominy and unpopularity. Friends, 
This Sermon on the Mount is especially for those who want to be partners in the gospel of the Lord Jesus, who want to fish for men. That's who it's given to, the Sermon on the Mount. And as we're going to come after Easter, week by week, we'll work through this terrific sermon. It is a fantastic sermon. It is a marvellous sermon. It's the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, is the Sermon on the Mount. But you have to look at what Jesus actually was teaching his disciples because it is radically different than what most people ever expected, certainly than they ever expected. We'll meet the most challenging and demanding teacher who calls upon his disciples to live such a different life, such a strange life of righteousness, that few will travel with us, even though the way leads to eternal life. And many will persecute us and say all manner of evil against us because of the things that we choose to do in following the Lord Jesus and in fishing for men. And yet strangely, they will praise God for us, for they'll see our good works and say it's not normal. There's something more to life that you see in this life. The way they're acting is the touch of God. And so we will, by God's grace, be able to fish for men. But for those of you who are still outside the kingdom of heaven, the Sermon on the Mount comes as a terrific challenge. It's the challenge to repent. Repent now while we can. Change now while we can. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he was not seduced by popularity, but understood the mission that you had given to him, to bring the kingdom by the cross. We thank you for the teaching he gave to us, to make it clear. We thank you for those disciples who left all to follow him, not really understanding what that would mean. We thank you for the opportunity we have of seeing what Jesus did teach them so that we may understand what it means to leave all and follow him. And we thank you, Father, that it doesn't call upon us to be miraculous, miracle workers and power merchants, but to be faithful and to live by your ways. We do pray for each one of us, Father, that we might all be citizens of your kingdom. And as citizens we pray, Father, that you would give us such faithfulness and righteousness that we may fish for others and bring them into the kingdom, even at the face of persecution and unpopularity. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.